Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking with Ovik Roy of FreeOp. Uh, we're going to talk about conservative prescriptions for healthcare reform. Uh, spoiler, FreeOp is not short for free operations, so the solutions lie elsewhere. Today, we're joined by Ovik Roy, who is the founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, FreeOp. Uh, he also hosts the Ricochet podcast, American Wonk, and is a resident of Austin, Texas. Welcome to the program, Ovik. Hey, good to be with you. We want to talk about a number of issues, healthcare most particularly, but I wanted to start just by asking you about FreeOp. Uh, and I want to ask the a question that you probably get asked a lot, I know, I get asked about my organization, Doug, about his. So uh, FreeOp, of course, is a, a, a think tank, a center-right think tank. But what makes your group different from all the other think tanks or research organizations that are out there? Well, uh, there's, of course, always things that are unique about any organization. But I would say that the thing there's there's a couple of things about FreeOp that are different by the, by the very nature of the fact that we started for that reason. So when I when I left the Manhattan Institute where I was before to start FreeOp, and I'd worked, as some of your listeners may know, on a number of presidential campaigns, both in 2012 and 2016 as a policy advisor. And so I came to really appreciate through that experience, how important think tanks are. If you're running a presidential campaign and you want an agenda to run on, and you don't have the in-house expertise on a particular policy topic, you're relying on think tanks to supply you with good ideas that are credible, that are well-researched, uh, that are they're well thought through, because you don't want to put something out there that's half-baked and have it get attacked by everybody. So the the role of think tanks particularly in presidential campaigns is very very important i saw that from from the inside but what i saw as well was political a national political system ecosystem in which a lot of free market ideas were failing uh, to ca- uh, to capture public support largely because of the uh, the way in which a lot of us in the conservative movement have approached free market ideas. That is to say, the conservative movement has largely been about, you know, leave me alone, let me keep my stuff, be faithful to the Constitution, all of which are salutary uh, ideas in and of themselves. But if you're trying to convince people who don't already agree with you that that you need to that you need to get somewhere uh, that, that we need to have a free market approach to a particular policy area how are you going to get 60 votes in the senate for that idea we saw with the healthcare debate we couldn't even get 50 uh, votes for a, a plan to reform our healthcare system in a more market oriented direction why because that bill was scored by the congressional budget office as leading to 22 million fewer people having health insurance you know what was interesting about that is i as i you know i fought hard to try to convince a lot of republican leaders to say hey you know you really ought to try to come up with a free market approach in which more people end up with health insurance because at the end of the day free markets in general 
lead to more abundance, more prosperity, less scarcity, lower costs, higher quality, more customer service. That's what free markets and competition do. But somehow in healthcare and a lot of other policy areas, we had come to accept actually a kind of a, a left-wing narrative that really the only way to, to allow more people to have health insurance was to get the government more involved. The only way to do X or Y is to get the government more involved. And and so those two things, seeing how uh, presidential campaigns really relied on think tanks and how a lot of our think tanks were producing work that accepted the premise that the best policy outcomes are achieved by left-wing policies. And then the third piece, which is that the Senate, you can't get you can't get 60 votes in the Senate for for things that come across as partisan or ideological. How do you solve that puzzle? How do you actually come up with reforms that can attract public support? that can attract the support of even some uh, red state or purple state Democrats so you can get those 60 votes in the Senate. Really, the only way you're going to do that is by finding ideas that expand economic opportunity. Because at the end of the day, what is it that all of us agree agree about? At a time when America seems so polarized, what is the, the one thing, the one principle that most of us, nearly all of us, agree on? It's the idea that every American should have the opportunity to succeed through hard work and diligence to the best of his or her abilities. We don't want anybody growing up in this country walled off from opportunity because of the circumstances of his birth. That's an idea that a lot of liberals believe in, a lot of conservatives believe in. It's not an idea that is unique to one party or one philosophy. I believe that there are a lot of free market ideas out there that expand opportunity. I think most of us who are free marketeers understand that free markets have actually been the thing that have lifted people from out of poverty throughout the world. But we never talk about it that way. We talk about it in this leave us alone, respect the Constitution language, which doesn't do anything to persuade somebody in the middle or the center left or even the far left that, hey, uh, that we share their values, that we share their mission of trying to make sure that every American has that has that chance to get ahead. We started free up with that express purpose of saying, you know, our mission is not to limit the size of government. Our mission is not to expand liberty per se. Our mission is to expand economic opportunity for those who least have it. And it just so happens that we believe that free markets are a central tool in achieving that outcome. And that subtle inversion of putting the mi making the mission expanding opportunity instead of the mission being expanding liberty is really, really important. Because at the end of the day, a lot of us in the conservative think tank world, we work at think tanks where the mission is expanding liberty, and then you write an article saying, oh, by the way, this idea will actually help poor people. Other people will say, outside your organization, well, why should we trust you? Why should, we, why should you have credibility with us uh, when it comes to helping poor people when that's not your mission? Your mission is to limit the size of government or reduce the size of government. It's not to help poor people. I think the only way you have that credibility and you start to build bridges across the aisle in ways that get you 60 votes in the Senate uh, and presidential campaigns that have mandates, you only get those public mandates if you actually try to appeal to people's values wherever they are on the ideological spectrum. So that's what we're trying to do. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, we're in kind of a weird time politically now. Uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of uh, questioning about, has the conservative movement become too rigidly ideological, uh, too many uh, free market orthodoxy, litmus tests, uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, the, there was a, a movement, reform conservatism, to try and do some of the things I, that I think you're talking about, thinking of, you know, folks like uh, Ross Douthat, uh, uh, Raihan Salam at, at National Review, uh, 
David from maybe uh, and I kind of put you in that camp. I don't know if you would self-identify that way or if you uh, would have. And the weird thing is in the 2016 election, in one sense, that view was sort of vindicated in that clearly there was room and freedom for candidates to deviate from the from the old line, the old verities to a to a large extent. You, you kind of, I think, had the the flip side of it now where, you know, there's a question of do ideas even matter anymore? Because, you know, what whatever you think of the uh, Trump policy agenda, most of it, I don't doesn't seem like it was think tank driven. To what extent does the kind of work that we do still influence the can it still be a valuable part of the policy conversation? Or is it all just tweets and memes and interest group uh, bickering? Well, uh, let me start with your, your your the first part of your question, which is uh, reform conservatism. So when reform conservatism first became a, a phrase, which was really around the time when Barack Obama uh, was elected in 2008, I was... I was identified as a reform conservative, and I would have identified as a reform conservative. I think there were a lot of there was in that time. I think a lot of overlap between my thinking and the reformacons. I think where Freeop diverges from the reformacons uh, has diverged and con- will continue to diverge. I, I think that what we what we now think of as reform conservatism today, in 2018, as we're recording this, is uh, a movement of people who are economically more centrist, shall we say, in terms of their view of free markets. That's the old, they're really, the, the in many ways, the inheritors of what, what we used to call neoconservatism. That is to say, uh, I think it was Irving Kristol who famously said, two cheers for free markets. Um, uh, it may have been uh, Norman Podhoritz. It was one of those two, one of the founders of the original neoconservative school, which before... Iraq was was more about domestic policy and about really a lot of former LBJ Democrats who became moderate right. conservatives, and that uh, that movement is one in which there's a certain amount of skepticism of a robust free market approach to to policy solutions, and that you need to have a certain activist uh, approach to deal with certain problems that that different from what we would say. I, I think, generally speaking, the reformacons tend to be, in many ways, uh, aligned with Trump on certain issues in the sense of, for example, you know, Raihan Salam would say, hey, you know, Trump is basically, he's he's basically responding to the same critique that I've had of the Republican Party, that it's too focused on free markets and not focused enough on uh, on the problems of the working class, and we need to have a more centrist economic agenda to address that. Uh, whereas I think where, where we are at FreeOp is we're much more about actually making the case that free market ideas can address the problems of the working class. So, for example, Donald Trump is a skeptic of free trade. Uh, and many of the reformacons are in a similar spot of being somewhat skeptical of free trade. I think where we are is free trade really does do a lot to help the poor. If you're low income, the fact that basic consumer goods are less expensive today because of free trade is good for you. Now, having said that, there are specific problems with particular communities where the the steel plant has has left the country or, or what have you. And we have to do a much better job of addressing the specific policy problems around 
concentrated losers of free trade, for example. But the, the, but the problem, the, the, but the solution is not to back away from free trade. It's to make sure that uh, we deal with the problems of concentrated losers so the diffuse winners can still benefit from free trade. We are, in a sense, more libertarian. I, I don't know if we would call ourselves libertarian per se, uh, but I think we're much more which we're much closer to libert- a libertarian approach in in that sense of re- of really under- uh, believing in free markets and their value in terms of politics. I think where we might be different from a, a typical movement libertarian is movement libertarians tend to say the government should get out of X. It has no business being in X, and that's just kind of the end of end of the thought process for libertarians. Whereas I think for us, generally speaking. The government being involved in X may lead to negative policy outcomes, but what we're focused on is the policy outcomes. We want to make sure that whatever reform that we're pitching, the end result of that reform is more economic opportunity for people with below median incomes or net worth. So we have a rule at FreeUp that, that we will not hire a scholar, we will not put our name behind a white paper or an op-ed unless that white paper or op-ed or scholar centers his or her arguments around how a particular policy idea will move the needle for people with below median incomes or net worth. And that way, we really focus, force ourselves to focus every day on how free markets or any other type of reform will make a difference for people who are below the median economically in the United States. And so that way, we reform the way the government's involved so that a, we have the best possible outcomes for lower-income people, and B, if you believe that free markets are the way to achieve that, how do you make that system more market-oriented in order to achieve that policy outcome? That's the problem. It's not so much the the, the purism argument is to me. It's not even really. It's not even real. Like a lot of people who claim to be purists are not actually purists. They're only purists when it suits them to claim that they're purists. You know, um, like historical. Yeah, like I mean, again, to take the healthcare debate. Um, you know, you had all these people saying, well, you're not a real conservative unless you want to repeal Obamacare and um, salt the earth that it came from. But those very same people were often people who were saying, we don't support Medicare reform. We don't support Medicaid reform. Some of the people who were saying we're going to repeal Obamacare and salt the earth that it came from were expanding Medicaid, which is one of the most left-wing statist programs there is. So uh, a lot of times people are saying that because there's a, a uh, they're appealing to uh, a Republican base, which frankly is not exactly libertarian. It's more actually aligned with Trump. It, it's more big government in ways that support us, and we're opposed to big government if it supports other people. And I think where we are is to say, look, we believe free markets work for everybody. Yes, are there, again, like with the free trade example, are there lacunae, are there gaps that you, you need to address perhaps with government action? Yes, but Broadly speaking, uh, we want free markets to work for everyone, and that means, for example, in the case of healthcare, there should be a certain amount of economic support, financial assistance for lower-income people who otherwise can't afford healthcare and health coverage in the United States. What we really shouldn't be doing is subsidizing healthcare for upper-income people. In America, almost every every person making six figures in America is getting government-subsidized health insurance through the tax code or through Medicare. That's a problem that we really should address, but there's very little interest in uh, our conventional political system to do that. So that's an example of an area where, you know, there's actually, in certain ways, common ground between us and maybe people who think more progressively about these issues. In fact, when people say, are you a conservative think tank, we would say, no, we're actually, we're a progressive think tank that believes that free markets are the way to achieve progress. You mentioned uh, libertarians. 
and talking about health care. When, when the Republicans failed to re- repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, shortly after that, Senator Rand Paul and President Trump announced this executive order about health associations. What is a health association and what would that executive order even do? Oh, well, the first thing you have to understand about executive orders is they can only work within existing statutory law. So if Congress passes a law like Obamacare, the executive branch has certain authority in how to enforce that law, but they can't simply say, we're just not going to implement the law. Uh, They can't do that, Uh, particularly with a law like Obamacare, where the benefits are accruing to individuals. They're not, uh, it's not appropriated funds that are being spent by a government agency. So, you know, the, the association health plan idea, well, it's been around for a long time. The original idea with association health plans would be that right now you have a tax benefit for getting health insurance through your employer. If you get health insurance through your employer, the value of that health insurance, let's say it's 10000 bucks, that 10000 bucks is not taxed. It's not taxed as income. It's not taxed for Medicare, Medicare and Social Security payroll taxes. It's not taxed at the federal, state, and local level. It's entirely excluded from taxation. So if you add it all up and you're paying 40 50% tax rates with all those things added in, payroll taxes and income taxes, every dollar you make in salary, is you actually keep 50 cents of that. The government keeps the other 50 cents. But every dollar you get in health insurance, you keep a dollar of that in terms of the value of it to you. And that over 70 years has led to a lot of people getting very, having a lot of their wages shifted into health insurance, which has made the health care system super expensive. It's, a, it's like an open bar in which, you know, the single malt scotch is completely free and it costs the same as the Bud Light. So you're going to go for the single malt scotch every time, or at least I will. Uh, so that's basically our health care system. So association health plans were an idea to expand that tax benefit to associations. So instead of, for example, having to get insurance that way through your employer, a church group or a professional society or a group of hikers could uh, could get together and say, we're going to form an association for the purpose of uh, purchasing health insurance benefits and get that same tax benefit that employer-based insurance gets. So it doesn't really solve the problem of healthcare inflation that that tax benefit has turbocharged, but it does at least give people who are outside of the employer-based system an opportunity to get insurance in a different way. That's the theory behind association health plans. It was introduced in George W. Bush's health reform plan, long forgotten now, that was uh, that was put out at near the end of his term in 2007. Now, what uh, what President Trump and Senator Paul have proposed is something that's very, very limited relative to that original idea, because that original idea requires changes in tax law. It's not something you can do administratively. What the administration is doing is they are investigating ways to redefine what counts as an employer uh, for the purpose of of pooling health insurance risk. So for example, right now, let's say the three of us, instead of working at think tanks where we're employed and getting health benefits, let's say we were freelancers. Uh, But we're all freelancers doing public policy research. And we decided uh, that instead of being self-employed and trying to get health insurance that way, we would band together and get insurance somehow. Uh, Or, you know, that could be like a larger group that could then buy insurance. Now, the thing is that you can already do that. So, for example, at FreeOp, we use a what's called a um, a PEO. I can't remember what it stands for. I think it stands for a professional employer organization, a professional employee organization. And what a PEO does 
is it basically pools a bunch of smaller employers into a large group that can then do a better job of negotiating health insurance benefits and other fringe benefits for you. We use one called JustWorks. So that that ability already exists, and the Association Health Plan Initiative from the president basically would be a kind of replica of that, uh, basically another avenue to achieve that same result. So it would help some people, but it wouldn't help everybody because um, it would be restricted to people in similar lines of work and similar lines of economic activity, which again, PEOs already do. So I, I think, like a lot of things, I think that, I think there are good things that are coming out of the, the administration in terms of executive orders and rulemaking, but nobody should be under the impression that these changes amount to the repeal of Obamacare. They do not. Obamacare is still the law of the land, uh, except for the individual mandate, which has been effectively repealed. But the rest of the law is in place. The rest of the law is 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 moving ahead. And there's nothing that the president can single-handedly do to change that. Besides, uh, you know, whether it's executive orders or legislation, what you know, what reforms are being enacted, say, in the last couple of years? Well, I'd say the main the main area of progress. Uh, uh, that the administration has spent a lot of time working on. There, there's a couple. But the most important is is not really directly related to Obamacare. It has to do with prescription drug pricing. So the administration has put together a, a major effort on trying to reduce the high cost of prescription drugs, uh, which is a, a big problem in this country that a lot of conservatives have ignored because their assumption is, well, uh, the only way to reduce prescription prescription drug prices is through price controls. And we're against price controls if we're free marketeers. So therefore, we accept high prescription drug prices. And this is a classic example of the asymmetries or inefficiencies that FreeOp tries to invest in. You know, So our view is actually that's not the case, that the reason why prescription drug prices are so high in America compared to the rest of the world is because crony capitalism. We don't have a market-based system in America. We have a system in which Drug companies can charge whatever they want, and the government just accepts the price. And that's not markets. That's crony capitalism. So if you want to have a competitive system, and we do for a lot of drugs, where we actually do have competition, particularly for drugs that are off patent, where generics can come in and compete, drug prices in America are the lowest in the world. And we, in fact, do a really good job in America of getting most people onto generic, inexpensive generic drugs as opposed to costly branded drugs. But those costly branded drugs, if you have to be on one, uh, particularly because it's a newer drug that's been recently introduced. So they're super expensive. So this is a huge problem that that the uh, health, Department of Health and Human Services under Alex Azar and the uh, Food and Drug Administration under Scott Gottlieb have tried to do a lot of work on. We published a big white paper on this topic called the competition prescription in 2016, which uh, I'm pleased to say a lot of the ideas that we proposed in, in that document are in the, in the administration's blueprint and I think there, there's a, there is, again, an important role for Congress to change laws that really drive the bus on this. But there are things that the, uh, that the administration can do and is doing to try to tackle uh, high cost of prescription drugs, things that were relatively arbitrary. So there were areas, for example, where the FDA was basically effectively barring competitors from the market and allowing monopolies to exist in ways that allowed those monopolies incumbents to charge higher prices. Uh, the, the classic example is EpiPen. So you may have heard the story about how EpiPen, the, the manufacturers or the, 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 the people who make EpiPen, basically increased the price of EpiPen, Mylan is the name of the company, by 600% 
over a six-year period. Why? Because the FDA basically wouldn't allow any generic competitors onto the market, even though the core ingredient of EpiPen is epinephrine or adrenaline, which was discovered 140 years ago. So, so there are things like that where the administration has done a lot of good work trying to make prescription drug prices lower. And again, to the point about free up, I think we, for too long on that and too many other issues, have accepted this idea that the only way to reduce healthcare prices, the only way to make health insurance more affordable, the only way to make allow enable more people to have health insurance is through more government. And we would never say that about anything else in the economy. We would never say it requires more government to ensure that every American has a smartphone. We'd say, let the free market work and let innovators uh, design those products so they're less expensive over time, right? But somehow in healthcare and a lot of other areas, we've just accepted that the left is right, that the only way to, to, to expand access to these things is through more government. And that's what we're really trying to fight at Free Up. As you mentioned, you know, there's some things that can be done through administrative action, but uh, for big picture health reforms, you, you need Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, of course, an attempt last year to do not a full repeal of Obamacare because you do need 60 votes. You know, they they came up with something to try and repeal parts of it and reform parts of it to the extent that they could with 50. Uh, that mm-hmm. ultimately wasn't able to get across the finish line. What do you see as the prospects for healthcare reform going forward? And, and how would you like to see that issue develop in terms of, you know, uh, legislative reforms? Well, uh, first of all, I think that the the repeal of Obamacare is dead. I know a lot of people don't want to admit that. A lot of people don't want to say it. Uh, they want to continue to gin up votes by saying, hey, I promise you I'll repeal Obamacare. The simple fact is you cannot repeal all of Obamacare with unless you have 60 votes in the Senate. This was obvious, and I've been writing about this for six years, basically right after Mitt Romney lost to Obama when Obama ran for re-election and Obamacare was going to go online. You can't take health benefits away from people. It's just too disruptive to do it just full stop. And by the way, there are a lot of Obamacare is only the cherry on top of the cupcake when it comes to government intervention in the healthcare system. The the 800 pound gorilla is Medicare and Medicaid. Those are the things you have to reform if you're concerned about government involvement in healthcare. And uh, and so what what I've argued for many years and and our and the 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 white paper that we actually launched Free Up with, which is second edition of Transcending Obamacare, is all about this idea that. Really, the thing that we should do on healthcare reform is embrace the goal of universal coverage and show how markets can achieve that outcome. And the models there are Switzerland and Singapore, two countries which, while they're different from the United States in certain ways, uh, they have far more market-oriented healthcare systems than the United States does, uh, and far lower costs and far more satisfaction, much better access to technology full choice of doctors, all the things that we care about. So there's this there's this idea, again, where we've just kind of accepted where the left is on this, where we equate universal coverage with single-payer health care. And they're not the same thing. So single-payer is one form of universal coverage in which the government is the sole insurance company and there are no, effectively no private insurance companies. You don't have to do it that way. You can have a system in which, in fact, like Switzerland does, where there are no government insurers. It's all private insurers, but you give people premium assistance, vouchers, if you if you will, uh, to buy private insurance if they need that help uh, to do so. And that system works really well in Switzerland, and it could work well here if we were willing to embrace it. And if we did that, if we actually said, you know what, we're going to embrace the idea that every American should have health insurance uh, and help the people who need the help in getting health insurance. But those of you who can afford to buy your own health insurance, we're not going to subsidize you anymore. If you're making $300,000 a year, 
you can buy your own health insurance. You don't need a government tax break to help you buy health insurance. And uh, if we do that, we could have a system that's that's a lot less uh, costly than the system we have. And that, from a fiscal standpoint, costs a lot less to the taxpayer than the system we have. So to me, that's that's the core the core idea in transcending Obamacare is to if we subsidize the people who need the help and don't subsidize the people who don't need the help, we can actually spend a lot less money than we do today on subsidizing healthcare in general, and we can have a lot less government involvement in the healthcare system than we do today. How realistic is that? Are there are there lawmakers right now that are backing or and actually trying to pass legislation along those lines there are uh there are legislators who are very interested in this general concept and are uh, are working on ways to turn it into a legislative form yes it's gonna it takes time it takes taking a policy idea and turning into legislation sometimes you know the, the legal elements of it can be something that requires a certain amount of engineering a certain amount of work but I think you will start to see ideas emerge uh, like that, especially as we turn the page on the midterm elections of 2018 and we start talking about the 2020 presidential campaign. What's the 2020 presidential campaign going to be about on health care? It's going to be all about, on the Democratic side, single payer. Even the people who are more centrist in the Democratic Party are being pushed to embrace single payer because they don't want to alienate the hard left Bernie Sanders types. And frankly, I will say this, give cre- I'll give credit to single payer in this way. Single payer done right would spend a lot less than we spend on healthcare today. It could actually reduce the budget deficit. Because if you do single payer right the way it's done in the UK and Canada, what you're basically doing is you're saying there's, you're going to abolish private insurance, everyone's going to be on government insurance, and we're going to cut in half what we pay doctors and hospitals and drug companies because we're now a monopoly uh, as the government. That's how single-payer systems work, and that's how they balance their budgets. So, yeah, if you do that, you could save money compared to the system we have today. Now, of course, you're never going to have that kind of a system because uh, the hospital lobby and the drug lobby and the doctor lobby, let alone free marketeers and conservatives, will oppose all that. Uh, but the point is like that there is a, uh, there is a case to be made for single-payer. Uh, from a purely fiscal standpoint, uh, if it's done the right way. Now, that's not what's being proposed. That's not what Bernie Sanders, for example, is proposing. He's proposing free health care for everyone and no real cost controls, which is not, not the same thing. But the point is, when you have that debate on the left about single payer, I think there is going to be a lot of interest in returning to this question of, you don't like how much you're paying for your health insurance right now. You don't like that your premiums are going up every year. What's the market-based alternative? Is the market-based alternative to wave your hand in the air and talk about buying insurance across state lines? Or is it is it going to be something serious or actually going to attack the underlying reasons why healthcare is so expensive in America and attack the unfair way in which we subsidize healthcare for upper-income people but not lower-income people when we really should do it the other way around? On your uh, your recent podcast with American Wong, you had a uh, conversation with Scott Winship about social capital, and this is a conversation mm-hmm. that we had recently on our podcast with Michael Hendricks of Manhattan Institute. So, just to kind of revisit the topic, what what is social capital in in your mind, and maybe how does that relate back to this idea of the mission of your think tank and uh, providing uh, equal opportunity? Yeah, uh, great question. So, well, what is social capital in my mind? Uh, In my mind, it is the things that are sometimes difficult to measure around the community one grows up in, in particular, and the social environment one grows up with, and the familial environment that one grows up in, and how those things affect your ability to succeed in life later on. It's obviously very hard for the government to 
enact policies that will ensure that people grow up in intact families or the people growing up in intact neighborhoods or people grow up in places where others are looking out for them. But those are, I think, m- most of us understand incredibly important in the, in the lives of children and the success of children. So how do you, how do you actually, uh, first of all, can you measure those things? And second of all, what are the policy, what's the way to think about that in terms of what policy can do to either build social capital or to destroy it? There's, there's certainly arguments that have been made traditionally in, in conservative circles that the welfare state destroys social capital by leading people to rely on welfare rather than, uh, rather than their communities for charity and things like that. I, I think of it a little b- more broadly. Um, I, I think in particular, what's been interesting in my ex- recent experience is how much we now have a, a kind of academic consensus around the role of intact families in uh, in economic success. It's pretty clear, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that intact families or being raised by uh, your biological parents in a, in, a, in, a, in, in a traditional household, that that has a, a big impact on your ability to succeed. It's understandable if you think about it. If you think about the single mom today who has three kids, and is working two jobs to make ends meet. The fact is, she's just not going to have the time to raise her children in the way that she would want to. And she's doing everything she can to support her family, but that doesn't leave a lot of time to actually raise them and read to them at night and do because she's exhausted. And it's it's not her fault in a sense, but it's but that is that is the reality. So that's an example of an area I think I think Historically, when we've talked about family and 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 the importance of family, it's been it's been talked about in this kind of almost Christian nationalist way. Well, you know, people who don't support uh, intact families are 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 just bad people who don't support family values. They're they're not with us on values. I think a better conversation would be to talk about um, and and some people obviously in the movement do this already, but I think there needs to be a real a real empirical emphasis on on how uh, welfare policy affects families and incentivizes family separations in ways that are really destructive. Uh, for example, another area of social capital that we're very interested in free op is the concentration of poverty through government policy. So if you think about housing projects uh, and the federal government through various programs that Congress has created in the Great Society under LBJ, basically creates this incentive for cities to build gigantic housing projects. Well, to be eligible for a housing project, you obviously have to have a certain, uh, be below a certain income threshold. So what do you do? You take all the poor people in a particular part of the part of the city or town and you put them all in the same place. And what's that going to do? Right? You're concentrating poverty and you're creating a culture of poverty in a way that didn't used to be true. It used to be that, uh, yes, of course, there were parts of the country that were poorer or wealthier, but there were lots of people who were low income who lived with upper income people in the same parts of town, or at least within within striking distance of each other. You didn't have that kind of economic separation or segregation that we have today. And so that's an example of where, where our scholar on, on housing policy, a guy named Roger Valdez, uh, he's doing great work in showing how instead of spending all this money on housing projects, if we actually basically offered people, a, if, you know, which we do to a degree, but we should do entirely, to offer people the ability to say, you know what, I want to rent a, an apartment in this part of town 
uh, and you know the the the, the place costs three thousand bucks, and the government's giving me two thousand bucks to help defray that cost. That but that place is closer to my office or closer to where I work. That's going to be better for me, and it's going to be better. It's going to be a more cost-effective use of that dollar instead of using it to build new construction, which is always the most expensive kind, especially when the government does it with public sector unions. So there, you know, how do you actually have a system in which we are helping people afford housing, but in a way that doesn't create concentrations of poverty? That's very important. Raj Chetty, the economist uh, who was a Stanford until recently moved back to Harvard. Uh, he's written a lot about this, and Raihan Salam has written a lot about this actually, about how uh, your social networks affect so much of your success in life, and also your expectations for how much you succeed in life. And so we've got to think hard about policies that have concentrated poverty and concentrated people in ways that lead them to have low expectations for what they can do with their lives. So are you uh, familiar with the, uh, the new Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, this concept of the opportunity zone? Is, is that sort of a good example of some of the, you know, maybe how the tax code could be used to bring, bring businesses into a poorer community? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Jack Kemp actually uh, was, was the person who came up with enterprise zones back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, as HUD secretary, when he was HUD secretary, he tried to to propose and push that. And there was some effort in the Gingrich years uh, to try to put some things in into the tax code along those lines. So it's, it's great to see that as part of the discussion again. The short answer is, I do think that there is some value to uh, to the idea of locating enterprises in lower income areas where you know you're creating more incentives to, for people to locate in those areas. There can be a flip side that to that too, though, and in this way that you you can create problems of gentrification. And usually on the right, people kind of look down on gentrification. Who cares about gentrification? But I'll explain why gentrification is important. So take a lot of the kind of old areas that have become hot areas. You know, Soho was a great example in the 80s in New York. Or um, uh, what's another uh, a good example? Maybe Oakland in, in on the West Coast, which Oakland used to, you know, is to a degree and was the kind of uh, poor cousin of San Francisco. And now, because the rents are cheaper, a lot, of pe- a lot of people are moving in and a lot of the older residents are moving out. Same is happening now in southern Harlem, which is connected East to Austin. the upper... Yeah, East Austin uh, is, is becoming like that. Now, here's the thing. In the reason why gentrification is a real problem is because of property taxes. So let's say you you've lived in Harlem for several generations, um, but the property values go up all around you because uh, you know companies move into that neighborhood. Maybe it's even an opportunity zone. Well, since in most parts of the country property taxes are assessed based on the current value of your home. Uh, you may get to a point where even though you own your home, the taxes you have to property taxes you have to pay on your home are unaffordable to you. And so you move out. Now actually California is one of the few states where that's not the case because California has a very enlightened approach to this uh, going back to its days as a conservative state where the property taxes are assessed based on the last sale value of the house. Um, so your property taxes don't go up uh, over time because it's based on the last transaction. Uh, and that's that's a, actually an idea for a property tax reform that has been proposed here in Texas as well. It hasn't really gone anywhere because the Texas, leg- leg- the Texas government re- re- relies on property taxes and are, is worried that you know that money stream will will slow down if they if they reform the system. It's it's a very politically thorny issue. But that 
that is a big problem. So you can it's great to have opportunity zones, you know, you could bring more jobs and higher income to those areas, but if the end result is higher property prices, so the people who live there today have to move out, you haven't really solved the problem. Um, so that's, I think, in and of itself, it's uh, it's a, it's a half solution. Yeah, I think you raise a a very important point there about the property taxes, and it is sort of perverse that we have a system where people are afraid of their the value of their home going up or a neighborhood improving to the point that you know people want to move there because. Uh, you know, they're afraid that they may not be able to to live there anymore, and so they, in some ways, would rather the neighborhood stay unappealing. You know, right? Uh, to to people, that's not. It's kind of the opposite of the way it should be. Yeah. So that's okay, why gentrification uh, is an issue that I think more conservatives should care about because it's actually tied to tax policy, you know, tax policy that comes out of left-wing urban circles. That if we reform that, we could actually uh, we could actually get people to really support higher property values in their neighborhoods because it would be more wealth for them as opposed to less wealth for them. Yeah. All right. Last question. So okay. you run a think tank. It's mostly national focused. Uh, yet you live in Austin. Other than the fabulous weather that we have here. Uh, what is what is the basis for that? Yeah, well, there's uh, aside from the, the weather and the barbecue and and the and the and everything else, there's a couple reasons. The first is that Texas really represents what we hope America will become. Texas isn't perfect; it has ways to improve or things it needs to improve on. But broadly speaking, you know, you hear so many conservatives say, "Well, if there if there are too many brown people in America, we're going to turn into California." This is a, a pretty consistent theme, for example, in Ann Coulter's writings, and, and uh, Heather McDonald and others write about this too. How if, we, if we let in too many brown people, we're going to turn into California. But you know what's funny is that Texas has just as many uh, members of minorities, ethnic and racial minorities, as California, and yet Texas is this dynamic, high-growth, free-market, low-tax, low-regulation economy that's doing extremely well, and where there's enormous population growth along with the economic growth, both on the left and the right, there is this idea that, well, diversity means big government. And Texas is the counterexample to that. Texas is a place which, in our view, again, represents the future of what America could be. As America becomes more diverse, it doesn't have to look like California. It could look like Texas. And can we learn from how Texas has achieved that result up to this point? in ways that have a national utility. So we think by being based in Austin, uh, there's this there's this uh, there's this term that that uh, that marketing executives and, and marketing researchers use called ethnographic research. So instead of taking a, a, a survey where you ask someone a poll question, do you like blue shampoo or green shampoo? You actually go into someone's home and say, okay, uh, when you get up in the morning, you take a shower. Exactly what do you do? And and by that kind of work. You actually uh, arrive at subtleties that you wouldn't uh, arrive at through just asking questions, because by asking questions, you may be ignoring things that actually lead you to the real answer. And so we think that in a similar way, being located in Austin allows us to be to, to drink the to drink the water and breathe the air of a place that has been so successful, both in terms of being diverse and young and dynamic and free, uh, and and we hope that. By being here, we can be we can learn from that and and provide to everybody else that perspective uh, on why Texas has achieved so much in ways that other people seem pessimistic that that America can achieve. You know, just to comment on that for a second, you know, I, I'm I'm based in Houston. Um, 
Uh, I live in the suburbs, so I spent a lot of time in Sugarland. And you know, the Los Angeles Times a couple years ago um, described Houston as the most diverse major city in the country. And mm-hmm. I think if you look at Sugarland in particular, um, I think it's probably just about one of the most uh, diverse communities in the country itself. Uh, as a suburb where I live, uh, we have a we, we're represented by a conservative uh, congressman. So mm-hmm. I think that you're definitely onto something. That just because you know it's a more diverse uh, community, and when I say diverse, I mean it's it is truly a mix of just about everything you can imagine in terms of nationalities and heritage, that, you know, there's we're still can be a very conservative place. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that has been very troubling to me about trends in uh, the conservative movement in the Republican Party of late has been this deep pessimism that, that a more diverse America can be a more free America. I, the immigrants that I know are all people they're not. They're not coming here to collect a welfare check. They left. They left their families behind, their communities behind, to come to a new country where they they don't speak the language well and where they have no connection. They do all that because they believe in America. They believe in what America is. And I'm not saying that's true of every single person, but it is true of the vast majority. Uh, and I could tell you, like you know, you you go to immigrant communities and see how hard people work and how how much they emphasize education and getting ahead and doing all the things that we as conservatives talk about. You know, uh, I actually compiled some statistics on this recently, uh, looking at the Asian American community specifically. So we as conservatives talk about, well, you, know, you hear people say, well, there's no, there's it's inevitable that the conservative movement be, will be all white because minorities just don't share our family values. But it turns out the divorce rate, the illegitimacy rate, the teen pregnancy rate are half in the Asian community what they are in the white community. The percentage of uh, uh, whites who go to college is like 34%. The percentage of Asians who go to college is 50%, a graduate from college, excuse me. So why aren't Asians voting Republican? Well, part of the reason is that the conservative movement, the Republican Party, have taken on this stance where if you're not, if you don't descend from Europeans, you can't be a real conservative. And is it any surprise that a lot of people who actually live conservative lives are not part of the conservative movement as a result? So that's uh, something that we feel, I think, very strongly about that that has to change, and we want to be a part of of helping that change along. Our guest today has been Ovik Rory. Ovik, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.